So now turning our attention to our passage this morning, let me ask this question. How do people experience you? When, when you're around people, what do they experience? What effect does your presence have? If you want to exercise in humility, ask those closest to you, hey, how do you experience me? It's a scary question because there's often a gap between how we think people experience us or how we want people to experience us and how they actually do experience us. And as we think about what it means to be a healthy church, this is a very important question to ask. How do people experience us both individually and as a community? Is my presence, is your presence, is collectively our presence and interactions with people godly, life-giving, and redemptive? Does our presence point people towards Jesus and build them up in him? Or do people experience us as selfish and showy, perhaps divisive and controlling? Maybe we're more concerned with our own power and image than the glory of Christ and the good of others. And so from our passage this morning, God's word tells us that a healthy church practices redemptive presence. A healthy church practices redemptive presence. Now, just a quick caveat before we dive into this passage. The Apostle Paul, writing this letter to Timothy, frames his instruction to both men and women. Now, this isn't Paul operating in some kind of sexist stereotypes. It's not as if the things that Paul says to men can't be in some way applied to women and the things that he says to women can't be applied to men. Here's what is happening. God's word is speaking to us, men and women, in particular ways because God knows how we're wired. He wired us. God understands there are particular temptations and tendencies that men have and particular temptations and tendencies women have And this message to us is speaking at those tendencies. This is God showing care and concern for us. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, being a good pastor and leader and speaking into our particular struggles. So I don't want you to hear this as kind of stereotyping people. I want you to hear this as hitting particular struggles and tendencies we have. And so the way I'm going to break this down is to kind of look at what does redemptive presence for men look like? What does redemptive presence for women look like? So let's first turn our attention to what this passage says to men. In verse 8, Paul writes this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the direct instruction here, the direct context is dealing with a worship service. So men are to use their hands. This idea of men lifting their hands in prayer is showing, hey, men, you are to use your hands, use your strength, use your energy, use your power to lead the people of God in the worship of God. Their hands were to guide and teach and disciple and build a healthy, gospel-centered, worshiping culture. But at the same time, all biblical scholars... All commentators agree that Paul had something much bigger in mind than just the worship service. He doesn't have this idea just for when the people of God gather. This image of men with their hands lifted in prayer was to be an image that represented the way men submitted their hands and their hearts to the Lord in all aspects of their lives. 
And so we need to ask this question, men, how do we use our hands? How do we use our strength and the power God has given us? How do you use your productivity and your creative and leadership capacity? See, men, we've been created, we've been wired toward task and achievement. We've been wired to exercise power and control over our environments, to use our hands to build and to create. There there is a drive in us to produce and to protect and to lead. And we value strength and competence. Men, let's be honest. When we're in a room and and a guy walks into the room, what's the first thought that goes through our head? Come on. Can I take him? Right? Can I take that dude? Or is it... If, if, you're, if you're not a fighter, at least this, let's own to this. Hey, am I competent in the same way that guy is? Does, does that guy threaten my competency, my ability in any way? Can he do more than I can do? So we're sizing guys up based on competence and strength. And whatever and whoever has our hearts will dictate how we use our hands, how we use our strength. And so men, what do we do with our hands? Who has our hearts? And let's consider the implications of this passage and what the Apostle Paul instructs us in. He says, men who submit their hands and their hearts to the Lord are men of dependent prayer. Men who have a confidence and trust in God's power and his goodness. And here's how people experience men of dependent prayer. They experience them as emotionally present and emotionally engaged having a settledness, having a peace, a calmness, an ability to proactively enter into sin and brokenness and anxiety and conflict with grace and patience and empathy. You see, such men, their presence is redemptive not because they can fix everything, but because they have the ability to calmly and steadily stand in the mess and tension of people's lives and take others to Christ. And men who submit their hands and their hearts to the Lord are men who use their strength and their energy to passionately and deeply worship God and lead others to worship him. And people experience such men as honest and deep and authentic and vulnerable in their worship of the Lord. And that presence, that being around such men, causes others to want to worship the Lord in the same way. When I'm around such men, I want to worship the Lord with more honesty and more depth and more authenticity and more vulnerability. See, men who submit their hands and their hearts to the Lord use their strength and their power and their productivity and leadership energy to disciple and to build others up in maturity in Christ. They sacrifice, they serve, they teach, they walk in godliness They will correct and confront when they need to. They encourage, they guard, and they protect. Ah, They open up their lives and their homes so that others may be blessed. People experience such men as faithful and wise, full of integrity, bold, proactive, present, safe, and sacrificial. Such men are trustworthy and they're encouraging. And man, when even men challenge and correct and enter into conflict, the experience people have is life-giving and redemptive because the way men do that, it leads others into repentance and deeper trust in Christ. Who doesn't want to be around men 
whose presence has this effect. Men who through their hands have people thrive. That is what Paul is calling men to in this passage. This is what the word of God calls us to men. That our presence would be godly, life-giving, and redemptive. So again, let me ask men, how do we use our hands? How do people experience us? Can we be honest that in our sin, in our brokenness, in our weakness, because we are prone to rebel against God, because we're prone to selfishness, how often do we not submit our hands and our hearts to the Lord, but submit them to our own kingdom? We submit them to build up our own image and our own status. How often are our hands used for our own control and our own wants and desires? And here's what the effects, rather than building up people, rather rather than our presence being life-giving and redemptive, people experience us as either aggressive in some ways or passive and withdrawn. We can be selfish and showy and divisive and use our energy and strength in a way that sort of comes on people as aggressive or we can retreat and be passive and disengaged. And people experience this, hey, we're after our own pleasure. I mean, they give a lot of attention to entertainment, but not a lot of attention to people. And so in our brokenness, our hands and our hearts are submitted to things other than the Lord, and that affects the way people experience us. How often has your wife, if you're married, how often have your kids, how often have your friends, how often have your neighbors and your coworkers or your gospel community experienced you in broken ways? God's word this morning confronts us on this and calls us to ask this question, how people experience us. Now let's turn attention towards women. After giving the instruction to men, Paul instructs women, instructs women this way in verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So ladies, no more makeup, no more doing your hair. Let's pray. In all seriousness, though, what is Paul getting at? What is he stressing here by putting his attention on outward appearance? Well, in the direct context, Paul is addressing those women who use costly attire, who use their beautiful, ornate hairstyle, their their image, in order to gain status relationally. In order to use those things to to gain a certain status within the church, a certain relational capital within the church that would give them power. And so the issue isn't that nice clothes and styling your hair and makeup are inherently bad. If if that's your tendency to believe, then I, I would point you to other passages in scripture where beauty is celebrated. Beauty in people, beauty in places, beauty in in uh objects. If you read the Old Testament, the temple wasn't a shack made out of a couple sticks. The priest didn't wear just some like drowsy kind of garb. Like God celebrates beauty properly used. And so there is an issue of whether beauty is being used to build an image and gain influence, status, and power, or whether beauty is being used in a helpful, redemptive way. Let me illustrate it this way. So I was reading about 
this, this braiding of hair and what was going on in the culture and the amount of time that it took and the amount of money spent. And so imagine those of you that, that are married, brides, you go through this process on your wedding day. You spend a lot of money to have your hair styled and you sit for hours getting it styled. And it's, it's more expensive than you normally spend on a haircut. Now imagine if you did that every week or every day. Like in one context, it's okay because on your wedding day, you actually are the center of attention and it's okay. But if that's the way you live your life every single day, now you've used beauty and image in an unhelpful way, a selfish way. And so the, the kind of hairstyle Paul is referencing here is akin to that. And so ladies, the question isn't, or the problem isn't a beauty per se. The question for you is, how are you using your influence and relational power? And so ladies, let me ask you this question. When a woman walks into the room, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Is it, can I take her? <laughs> no. My guess is that your questions probably revolve a little bit more relationally. What is my relationship to this woman? What is my kind of relational status of this woman? Can I be friends with this woman? What about her sort of orients me relationally to her? And so there are questions more of relationships rather than competence. While men are wired towards tasks and competence and strength, women are more oriented relationally. This does not mean that women don't value strength or creativity or women don't like to use their hands. But the way women engage those things are more likely to be in a relational way. Women value interconnectedness and using relationships to exercise influence and power. It's often said men develop relationships and relate shoulder to shoulder, and women relate and develop relationships face to face. And so what does this have to do with clothes and beauty? Well, how often does beauty grant you certain relational status? How much in our culture that if a woman is beautiful... She can gain relational status through her beauty. How often if you're fashionable and have clothes, which is a sign of wealth, does that not grant you certain relational status, relational capital? You know, sure, personality helps. How you treat people helps. But is our, not our culture inundated with this idea that beauty and wealth and fashion grant you immediate relational capital and status? When you think about the messages, women, that you are bombarded with, what do you find your value in? Oh, my beauty. Oh, the clothes that I wear. The message, like if I want status, if I want to have kind of the position, then I need to be beautiful and I need to have nice clothes. And the reason these things are so effective is because in your brokenness, it hits on something. It, it connects with your desire to be relationally connected. It, it tempts and prompts those things in your heart. And so into this dynamic, God's word calls women to a godly, life-giving, redemptive presence. So women who adorn themselves not with image or brand, but with good works. Women who adorn themselves with sacrifice and wisdom and discernment 
and encouragement. Women who adorn themselves with hospitality and love, who are known for opening their heart and their lives to others. Women who build relationships not through social status, which creates cliques, but through mutual love and service and sacrifice, which creates radical unity. Ladies, do you understand the power you have to build unity in the church? This doesn't say men don't have a role to play unity, but you are so important to building unity in this church. The power you have relationally, the things that you can do relationally that men just don't get, you can exercise that in a godly way to unify us and build relationships. And so it is so important that your redemptive presence builds unity. And think about the way this plays out in worship. Your relational presence, your relational connectivity can gather people, can pull people together in worship. Worshiping is one body. So there's great power in relating to people in this way. And women who use relational influence not to pull others into kind of the gravity of your own kingdom and to meet your own emotional needs and to kind of build your own relational status, but using your relational influence to build others up in Christ, to see them grow in maturity in Christ. And people are going to experience such women as emotionally present, as emotionally engaged, as also having a settledness in their soul, a peace and a calm, an ability to proactively enter into brokenness and sin and conflict with grace and patience and empathy and love. Your presence is going to be redemptive, not because you can fix everything, but because you can enter in and steadily and calmly sit in attention and mess with people and take them to Jesus. That is the power, women, you will have when your presence is transformed through Christ. And so, ladies, you need to ask, how do you use your influence in relational power? Can you be honest because of the sin in your heart and the ways you are tempted? Because you are prone to rebel against God and the things he has called you to, is it not true that oftentimes, instead of using your relational influence for the glory of God and good of others, You're prone to use it for your own status and image. You're tempted to seek relationship for your own power and your own emotional stability and your own sense of worth and belonging. So ask yourself these questions. Are the things that people most notice about you external? Are they image conscience? Is the things that people most notice about you built around brand? Are the paths to your relationships image, beauty, and brand? Now, some of you may think this. Look, I'm not beautiful, and I don't have fancy clothes. So this don't apply to me. Paul's not just talking to the rich, pretty girls in this passage. God's word is not addressing just the rich, pretty girls. All are tempted in these ways. All need to ask, how are people experiencing you in relationship? Are your relationships built to support your status and your needs and your self-esteem? Are you pulling others into your own kingdom? How often has your husband, your kids, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your gospel community experienced you in that way? For men and women alike, the thought that people 
usually experience us or sometimes experience us in these broken ways can be very humbling. And it should humble us. The sin in our heart should humble us. We should feel the weight of the ways that we often interact with people in very broken ways. But we should never be hopeless. Because of the gospel, we should never be hopeless. Because just a few verses before this, what does God's word tell us? What does God's words remind us? That Christ is our mediator. Christ is our ransom. And so men, Christ used his hands. He used his power. He used all that God had given him to build. And he did this for you. Women, Christ used his relational power, his relational influence for you. He performed perfectly for you. Men, women, Christ stood in our place. He died for our sin. He spilled his blood that we could be forgiven. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're cleansed. And if you're in Jesus Christ, here's also what is good news for us this morning. He's poured out his spirit on us. He's clothed us with his power so that now our presence can be godly, life-giving, and redemptive. And so this is what he says to men. Son, and you are a son, I love you. I have made every provision for you to walk in godliness. I have given you my very spirit so that now your presence can be godly and redemptive and life-giving. I've called you on mission with me. Now go, make disciples, allow your presence to have this impact on people. And he says this to women, daughter, I love you. I've paid for every sin. I've paid for every hurt. I've paid for every way that you have experienced brokenness and have inflicted brokenness on others. And I have spared no expense. I have poured out my spirit on you so that your presence can be godly and life-giving and redemptive. I've called you to be on mission with me. So join me on mission. Join me in making disciples. Join me in experiencing transformation. And God will use you in this way. So whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, no matter your tendencies, no matter your temptations, no matter the ways you've been wired, God has a word to you. God calls your presence to be redemptive and life-giving. I think we need to make one quick point here before we conclude. Whether we're men or women, I don't think we can talk about the way people experience us without at least mentioning social media. Gosh, I I hate bringing up social media in a sermon because it just seems like low-hanging fruit. But I think we need to spend one minute reflecting on this for a second because so much of the way we interact with people in our world is through social media. So the way people experience us is often mediated through social media. So I'm not going to go on a rant. I'm just going to say this. There cannot be a gap between the way people experience you face-to-face and in person and how they experience you in social media. God's word here doesn't claim authority over just you interacting with people face-to-face. It claims authority over you on social media. 
So in the very broken ways that you may experience people, or you may interact with people and they may experience you in broken ways, could be the very thing and will be the very way they experience you on social media. And so allow the word of God to bring your social media experience into line with what he's called you. Let that be godly, life-giving, and redemptive for people. Let it build up Christ in his kingdom, not our kingdom. And there are various ways men and women engage those things differently. I'll let you sort those things out in gospel community. So men, women, may we lean into the way God, the ways God has wired us. God has wired us in distinct ways for the good of the church. And so may we lean into these things. May the hope we have in Christ, may the life we have in Christ, transform the way people experience us so that the way they experience us is godly, life-giving, and redemptive. Living this out is important to building a healthy church. So let's bring our lives under the goodness and the grace of our God and may they people experience in this way.